Welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. As soon as I started this podcast, I knew I would eventually tackle the hot debate around gender, sex, and trans rights. And it is a debate from whether gender identity is innate and immutable, whether sex is an innate and immutable binary, society is split and opinions are rapidly changing. And I knew exactly who I wanted to speak to on this topic, and that was Sarah Dighton. And this podcast will show you why. She's incredibly knowledgeable about the subject matter, but also she is able to show compassion and thoughtfulness, while also being able to take the piss and show some levity. And levity is sorely lacking in public life. We open the podcast by talking about the human need to feel part of a group and part of a shared identity, and what cancellation is actually like for someone. Sarah talks about her own experiences, and I open up about my fears of cancellation for even having this chat. The rest of the pod is a deep dive into the gender debates, blue brains and pink brains, and the divides in modern feminism. We also discuss pornography and censorship, and the importance of disagreement and conflict in our personal lives. Finally, before we begin, I'd like to apologise for my dreadful audio quality in this episode, which makes it sound like I'm recording from a cave in Antarctica. I hope you enjoy it, despite my crackly, tinny voice. With me today is Sarah Dighton, journalist, columnist, and critic who writes about popular culture, cultural trends, and as we'll talk about today, sex and gender issues. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thanks, and thank you very much for having me. I guess my first question would be, the one I really want to ask, is does it get any easier being cancelled? <laughs> I like that we're launching straight in on the assumption that I am a cancelled human. <laughs> oh, oh, having, having that brand or having that tag on you and podcasters suggesting mm. you are a cancelled person. Well, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because one of the um, kind of foundational rules of cancellation is that no one who's cancelled you will ever admit that cancellation exists or could possibly have happened. So it's a very strange kind of social mechanism where there's a group of people who deny that it ever happens or could possibly happen or exists, but 
also tacitly say that it was a great thing and some people do deserve it. <laughs> so everyone who's been cancelled is in this kind of quantum state of cancelled and not cancelled. And <laughs> it's... No. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have definitely heard the argument quite explicitly. There's no such thing as cancel culture, culture, but there should be. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, people make it all the time. They were making it about um, Louis C.K. and the fact that he um, did a gig at Madison Square Garden recently, and a huge volume of the commentary about that was exactly as you're saying. There's no such thing as cancel culture, but there should be. And you're a bit like. I hold no briefs for Louis C.K.'s past behaviour. He's a very funny stand-up who behaved atrociously towards female fellow comics. But the idea that um, the left as a whole would settle on this situation where rather than having some kind of judicial process, some kind of formal justice procedure where you could deal with a sexual harasser, you just say... Probably the best thing is that if we just go around kind of summarily ruining people's careers and giving them absolutely no way of coming back. You're like, are you sure, though? <laughs> are we sure that this is a great left liberal position to be adopting? Um, anyway, so I wasn't cancelled for showing my penis to people in green rooms. Um, you'll be amazed to hear. Um, I was um, quote unquote cancelled because I write about gender and because around 2013, 2014, um, I kind of stepped publicly into um, what I think we should just call the gender wars. <laughs> just to like really, you know, give them their due. <laughs> Isn't that due? Um, so around that time, I stepped into the gender wars and at the time I did it, um, I um, genuinely did not think that it would have as much of a personal cost as it actually did um, so, um, intermittently people will say gosh you must be very brave um, which I'm not um, the thing I am instead of brave is quite simple so I kind <laughs> of was Writing about feminism at the time was doing a fair amount of work for the Guardian's Commenters free blog at the time as well. Um, often writing about feminism and kind of subjects around women, sex, power, violence and reproduction. Um, and at the same time, the conversation about trans rights and gender identity was kind of, I could sort of feel that coming up the inside there was a increasing visibility of trans people it was good increasing political organization of trans people also good but accompanying that there was a hardening of certain arguments in a really identitarian direction by which i mean um if you look at the 2010 equality act the way that trans rights are formulated in that is by using the idea of um, physical transition, of gender reassignment. So your protected characteristic in the Equality Act is if you are someone who is, has undergone, is intending to undergo, or is perceived as intending to undergo or having undergone gender reassignment. And it's tied to this surgical pathway 
that is what, you know, people use trans to mean transsexual. And it's only very, very recently that the kind of popular understanding has started to catch up to the elite understanding of trans as transgender, meaning a person with a gender identity that is at variance with their birth sex. Um, so I kind of found myself writing in this, um, what felt like an increasingly kind of pinched and crimped manner because I knew there was this set of mores and taboos around gender identity that I was trying not to violate. But at the same time, I was writing stuff about abortion rights. I was writing stuff about about physical sex that is very difficult to convey clearly without violating some of the taboos around gender identity, without talking about the sex body, without, you know, um, fundamentally talking about the fact that abortion is something that happens to female people as female people um, and is a really specific experience in that way. When there's this pressure to, you know, be inclusive in your definition of woman and your definition of who might need an abortion, you end up in this preposterous situation of just talking about, you know, people who need abortions, which is in fact where Planned Parenthood in the US has managed to like talk itself way out onto that insane limb of <laughs> talking about pregnant people. Um, so this is a long answer to your very, as a brief <laughs> everything here. Um, so I started writing about this stuff. I began with the, just with the feeling that it was actually quite a simple thing. And once I started to kind of publicly, I mean, this is very hubristic, actually. It makes me sound like a right ego. Um, but once I started to engage publicly with the idea that gender identity and physical that need to be treated in different ways and we should still, you know, we should not compromise our feminist principles on the basis of inclusion. We shouldn't um, compromise our, like, trans people's rights on any basis either. But there is, you know, it does come down to a certain clash. And where there is that clash, it needs to be resolved by giving physical sex primacy, in my opinion. I was like, that's a very simple and controversial point that everyone's going to agree with me about once I start making it. Um, they did not. <laughs> and the um, and the immediate effect of it was um, like deeply unpleasant to the point that I would use the word trauma unironically about it because um, at the time, the kind of, um, obviously, writing for The Guardian, very, like, I am a left-wing person. My politics are left-wing, very much embedded in... Um, social groups that kind of took those sorts of principles as read and I found myself immediately not just estranged from much of my peer group by having expressed this opinion but cast as a sort of a moral monster by people who I had genuinely considered were my friends so um, you know I found myself once being denounced on Twitter by a man whose kid I'd babysat for. And you're a bit like, if you think I do genocides, maybe don't trust me with the bedtime story. Like, did this not come up? <laughs> this question of my character did not occur to you previously. Maybe this is not an appropriate way to, you know, prosecute your disagreement with me. Um, and that's a very 
um a very upsetting experience actually to sort of see yourself being unpersoned in that way um is really dislocating um and along with that there was a certain shutting down of professional opportunities which is a really insidious thing especially as a freelancer obviously if you work on staff and you get fired because of your beliefs or principles then you are going to probably have some kind of record with HR you'll probably have some kind of you know there will be something that tips you off about or that gives you some concrete evidence of what's actually happening but when you're a freelancer obviously you don't you know you're not on site you're not privy to those conversations you don't have employment rights and so it's more a question of just your emails going unanswered of just knowing that you've kind of somehow slipped off the grid um like the only experience where i can definitively say that i was like literally genuinely cancelled for these opinions is i would i wrote a very substantial feature for mosaic magazine which was doesn't exist anymore but it was the magazine of the welcome trust science charity and um it was about called what is gender so i think i pitched that to them in 2015 and they very enthusiastically accepted gradually i think 2015 was in lots of ways quite a key year a lot happened in terms of this um whole subject coming to greater recognition and so across the time i was writing it the editor started to get increasingly antsy and increasingly um worried about that i wasn't taking an appropriate track so she went from having signed off my original pitch which was you know i wanted to investigate what is gender what is gender identity what are some of the questions that we should be asking about this phenomenon and the way that it's being treated um to saying to me in a phone call that she wanted it to be more about what it feels like to be trans and can we head off the possibility of people calling me a turf and i was a bit like i don't think you can no yeah i don't i don't think we can <laughs> we can save ourselves from that one and um, and that piece was spiked and um no reason was given for the spiking other than those concerns um and ended up being published by Helen Lewis at the New Statesman in the end. So it did find a home. It was, you know, again, cancelled, but not cancelled as things go. Mm. Um, And that kind of thing, those kinds of professional consequences are, you know, like undoubtedly really unpleasant. But at the same time, it does get better because, or it has got better for me, um because you know like that world which i was part of and which you know those friends those titles all of that stuff you know that's not the entire world and there is actually a a broader media environment and a broader social world that i am very happy in now it's just that moment of adjustment of feeling everything yanked away from you is uh, deeply horrific. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that's often overlooked when we talk about 
cancel culture, we don't talk about the kind of human impact on the individual. More of a kind of professional still getting work. Oh, look, um, there is on this podcast still spouting oh. out. Still, that blog was still published on a new statesman. Willing to still be a, a broad platform or a different idea. And I think that, some, that looking at purely at that lens, actually, well, there's a couple of issues. One, if you are incredibly successful author, Indian journalist, you can often withstand a lot, a lot more. And there are countless stories. It's almost like su- survivorship bias. Right, exactly. Continue to have platforms. Those those freelance journalists who are just quietly put away in a box to get any work, or those musicians who are just quietly force out their band, never hurt. Right. There's a very very good article that Yashamel wrote for Persuasion about. I think it was Persuasion. It may have been the Atlantic. I'll check before you do the show notes. Um, but about the people who actually get cancelled and the example he used was of a delivery driver who was photographed by um, just a random other driver and he was photographed in the act of doing what was interpreted as being the okay sign which if you can cast your brain back through several layers of internet bullshit there was a point at which the OK sign was being pitched as a far-right signal. And so this poor man, who was not a member of the far-right in any sense um, whatsoever, um, was photographed, put on social media, tagged as a far-right sympathiser, lost his job. Um this is a working class American so exponentially worse even than if it had happened in the UK because you lose your job in America you are you know like there is basically nothing for you you lose your health care you are very much left out on a limb and this is not you know there is no like economy of the cancelled delivery driver in the same way that there is an economy of the cancelled comic or an economy of the cancelled journalist he just lost his job really unfairly and had no resources to articulate the unfairness of that predicament. And it's those situations, actually, those that kind of absolute cancellation. Because when people are cancelled, the definition is that they are cast out from the kind of circle of sympathy, cast out from being people deserving of being listened to. Um and that's where you get the survivorship bias that you're talking about because you know if someone's really cancelled you're never going to hear from them which means that the repost can always be oh well of course cancellation doesn't exist otherwise we wouldn't be able to hear from you about how terribly sad it was to be cancelled it's interesting when you, you talked about kind of elite opinions on gender and sex issues and then the kind of normie opinion and I, because I'm such a terminally online individual, I am aware of those elite opinions and also aware that I have a small platform to kind of share ideas and get myself in trouble. And sometimes, 
their dodgy opinions are only heard to five people in the world. And actually, it's it, but if they had Twitter, it could be dangerous. But I do enjoy doing this podcast. I enjoy being on Twitter. I enjoy writing blogs. But I was aware quite early on that they could get me in trouble, not only politically when I was a kind of minor politician, and yeah. socially. And I feel unconsciously I'm constantly reinforcing my social circles. Right. I happen to be a social butterfly and like meeting and hanging out with lots of different people. But I definitely, you know, have friends in different circles, have friends of different political leanings, and that makes some of a very conscious effort to find friends with different political opinions to my own. Sure. I think like it's quite a healthy thing to have. Part of it is protecting myself from losing everything. So I know people whose social circles are relatively narrow, so they, for example, most of their friends are in a punk rock scene mm. that politically charged. If their political opinions were to be found, say if they had yeah. opinions on gender and sex issues, if they were, if they lost kudos, they would lose their entire friendship group and their network. Yeah. But it's something I find I find fascinating and strange and in some ways maybe a function of the sort of tendency to more atomized lives that we um we actually have. So one of the things that I've always found found sort of low key hilarious about the left is the um, you know, pride with which people say never kissed a Tory. Um, I grew up in the countryside. <laughs> I don't know that I don't know the political leanings of all the boys I kissed, but <laughs> if I never kissed a Tory, I'm pretty sure I would have kissed no boys whatsoever. <laughs> and um, and this um, sort of strange article of faith that you can arrange your life in such a way that the only people you associate with are people who you find agreeable. I mean, it's like, do you, you know, is there no one in your your family who has disparate opinions from you? Is there, you know, is there no room in your life for people you disagree with? And again, like my family is, um, I know, um, I'm an atheist and a lot of my family is strongly involved in the Salvation Army. Um, and that's fine. That would be a deranged thing to fall out with them over. They're people I love and I enjoy talking to. And we, I'm sure we have extremely different beliefs about lots of different things. But I, it would be a sort of a, a kind of appalling social violence to cut myself off from those relationships. And it's the willingness of people to to cut themselves off from relationships that involve conflict that I find fascinating and strange and unhealthy. Because I think conflict is, you know, like an important and enriching part of relationships generally, I think. You can't, it's, it would be very boring to be in love with a version of yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> as, as the most extreme example, if the only person you ever hung out with 
was a perfect replica Leo. <laughs> Nothing surprising or interesting could ever happen in your life. You need difference and disagreement for interesting stuff to happen. And that's even more true in politics. Like politics is a machine for turning disagreement into hopefully better decisions. And if you don't have that space for disagreement within politics, you like base level do not have any politics if you aren't capable of dealing with and negotiating disagreements. And extreme stances and extreme outcomes can happen when it's like lack of questioning and dissent. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. It's absolutely necessary. The hang on a minute comment is so integral to order <laughs> in the kind of a liberal democratic society. And I guess my worry about the overarching trend is the parameters of what's acceptable speech and what's heretical speech are changing quite rapidly. What is deemed acceptable speech is narrowing and closing. Um, I guess the gender issues are absolutely the obvious example. Uh. Looking at YouGov's 2020 polling, I can just see certain Christmas dinners in certain households in which very progressive ostracizing family members. I'm not speaking to that uncle anymore. Mm. Or the uncle expressing what is still a mainstream idea. I think the gender issue is particularly interesting because it's so deeply felt as such a strong attachment to the basic principles of trans women are women, people know who they are best, etc., etc. that kind of line of thinking. Um, and it's so remote from the general public's feelings about gender identity, um, which are broadly and rightly very tolerant, very live and let live attitude about that, about trans people. Um, but not broadly tolerant of the idea that anyone who, anyone who says they are a particular sex should be treated as that sex purely on that basis. Um, and it's very weird to see, um, you know, very high level politicians who have clearly had to negotiate public feeling and, you know, you know, would not be in their position if they didn't have some kind of feeling for what public sentiment is and ability to listen to the public and respond to those concerns. Basically, like, adopting these platitudes, treating them as given and not even acknowledging that even if these are things that they believe very strongly and think are very important, they are unpopular positions that need to be argued for um, and I can't think of many instances in my lifetime where policy and public feeling have got so thoroughly dislocated that the policy side isn't even referring to the public feeling a lot of the time, isn't even trying to persuade. I absolutely agree. I think I'm the things are pulling out about Scottish attitudes to self-definition. Yeah. It is. It is remarkable that between this 
athletes, for the better term, and a and general public. I think there's a couple of issues. I think that politicians are, are scared of stepping out of line on this issue because uh, most of the majority of the public fundamentally have more important issues to deal with, in their opinion. They think there's, yeah. this is not a priority day-to-day. Um, but those who do care about it are going to be uh, very vociferous and very vocal and very hostile. So lots of um, politicians will just sort of go with the grain of their, their side and follow their whip. Yeah. But secondly, this really intoxicating, powerful belief that you are on the right side of history with this, that your policy stances are bending the arc of history towards justice. That is so right. socio-political, cultural psyche that there is that arc of history. You're either on the right side of it or on the wrong side of it. So powerful. And the fear of being on the wrong side of that is kind of existential for some people. And I can understand why politicians said, I don't want to be go down in history as the person who did what, what was wrong and will be seen as wrong. Um, definitely and I just feel like that's quite intoxicating. Yeah, no, I do think that that plays a very substantial part in it. And I also think there's a um, just a real strong element of faith about it, which I suppose goes along with what you're saying about the right side people. of history. <laughs> it's very like. I don't want to get all Tom Holland on us, but this is, you know, there's a very Christian element to kind of all this and a kind of a religious zeal. Oh, extremely so. It's extremely the sheep and the goats and the lost and the saved and, you know, selecting a class of martyrs and all of which is, um, you know, terribly, um, <laughs> like emotionally um, powerful but a very bad way of deciding what prison you should put a rapist into, it turns out. <laughs> I was looking at the ego polling again, and it's a bit frustrating how little polling there is on people's actual view of the idea. But it's so fun- fundamental to transcribe that people can be born in a r- wrong body, and this is completely natural like person sexuality is. Um, or whether individuals or whether popular view is actually that they see gender dysphoria as a mental illness that causes distress and that distress can be eased by transitioning yeah. under the old kind of establishment view that was yeah. because that distinction on how you view transgenderism is kind of fundamental to the whole debate and I don't think there's been quite enough polling on what people really think I think the YouGov polling is probably the best thing that we have and when it says is a, a transgender woman is a woman a transgender man is a man overwhelmingly the tribes that you expect but then on access and access it really interrogates well what does that mean and I think it's really interesting that the more you get into the practical um, applications of adopting self-ID as a policy 
the more resistance you find and very strong resistance and it's an issue where the more people learn the more they tend to become embedded in being against it which um i think is interesting which is not the pattern that has been seen with any of the social movements that that trans activism has chosen to compare itself to and that, yeah and that's clear in the scottish uh, with the polling of constituencies by unheard or my view on self um id the most hostile oh. are now pretty much all scottish because this is where the debate right right exactly and i think i think one of the worst consequences of this particularly you know embarrassing episode in our politics and our national cultural life is that it has not served trans people well it has left trans people very much exposed and held up as topics of conversation in a way that average trans person does not wish to be like picked over and treated as an issue of national debate and it has not actually done anything to my mind to further trans people's rights um i mean the kind of the big scandals that or the big issues that need to be talked about in terms of trans people's lives i think are you know like we should be thinking about what are the long-term health consequences for people to transition and how can they be supported because there is a terrible dearth of longitudinal data about health outcomes for medical transition and that is an awful situation to put people in who have gone through very significant medical procedures with long-term outcomes and they should be being looked after and we should be collecting the information about what is best for them to help guide decisions in the future. It's really bad that follow-up is so poor. Um, and the same should be happening for mental health and for looking at whether adopting the framework of, um, of affirmation, whether that is actually good at resolving the problems that people are starting with and whether this is helping people to have better lives we should be looking at that and we shouldn't be making people's decisions for them but as a society with an interest in people's well-being we should be following those things up yeah and, and actually the debate currently on that particular issue is so toxic that a debate actually can't happen so on the debate around version therapy and whether um it should also not only just apply to sexuality but gender identity and the impact banning that outright could have on therapeutic interventions to help yeah. people who's very young for example understand better what might be causing their discomfort in their own body and whether or not affirmation is right for them in their particular circumstances that could be even having that dialogue could be banned if the if the if the law isn't tightly worded and right. clinicians in a position where they don't have that debate with a potential with a sorry with a patient because 
or kids fall foul of the law. And we're just not able to have a debate around those nuances because of it. So, no toxic. Yeah, and I do think that the environment has changed significantly over the time that I've been writing about this. I do think that there is an increased political will to take this issue seriously. And I do think that that is true within the Labour Party itself as well as, um, you know, obviously the Conservative Party has taken the lead in terms of this. And I think Kemi Badnock, for example, is an extremely astute legislator. She has always shown herself to be very much across the detail on this and to understand it as an issue. Other people on the right are mm, not so <laughs> punctilious. And are much more willing to jump in and essentially exploit it as an issue. And one of the problems is until Labour can fully develop a rigorous internal culture around debate on these issues, it's going to be left to the right. It's going to be left between different wings of the Conservative Party to figure it out. And that's not good enough. And and I'm slightly worried about what what that means less so with kind of Kemi Badenoch or those on the kind of mainstream right I have fears perhaps towards the kind of further right in British discourse American discourse on this topic because well right there's a a real problem um I mean really ideally we should just stop speaking English and it would save us a lot of <laughs> pain. <laughs> if we could just get back to Latin, <laughs> I could cut the whole American discourse out of our national lives. I think that would be fantastic. Um, it's a real problem that linguistically we are tied to America, which is has a pretty dysfunctional political culture in a lot of ways and an exceptionally dysfunctional political culture around the gender identity issue and it's the kinds of laws that Republican um, legislators and um, the kind of attitudes that Donald Trump has been espousing are transphobic, are rampantly bad and hostile towards trans people and are deeply, deeply damaging and illiberal. I I was actually going to talk about this a bit in reference to your blog, Six Years in the Gender Wars, which is going to be like oh. your tour de pause from the flip. It's a history. And you highlight something that was just, you know, actually, back to the jaw drops. And you highlighted that in 2020, there were 125 trans prisoners in England and Wales. 60 of them were sex offenders. And you suggest, and I agree, that rather than this suggesting that being trans somehow correlates with being a sex offender, it suggests that sex offenders are identifying themselves as trans in the hope of gaining access to women and victimized. And they are two very, very different things. Exactly. The second point cannot be discussed without accusations of your, your heritage, your hateful, your provides the only ones who can have space to talk about these issues mm. are, in my view, bad actors. And I see this 
horrible slippage in public discourse that has right-wing commentators nudging towards the idea that gender non-conforming gay men or yeah. drag queens are all predatory or sick or trans people themselves. Right, the dreaded groomer discourse. Yeah, and I think without there being, how do I articulate it, but the, the way that you combat that horrible discourse by saying, actually, there is an issue here to be discussed and these people have got it wrong, but there are issues that need to be discussed and this space can't just be left for these really horrible bad actors. Yeah, it's a real problem if it scares moderate people away from expressing their opinions because there has to be that moderate space because people are like this is a very concerning thing for a lot of people a lot of people become radicalized by this issue because it is radicalizing it is um you know they experience it as you know an attack on safety and attack on dignity and attack on their sense of reality and when you're dealing with that kind of emotional force it is going people are going to look for the places where they are welcome to talk about it and if you don't make those places then you're leaving the field open to people who are you know not particularly great or brilliant um i would say um Picture in America is slightly more mixed than than the impression I was just giving. In the the New York Times has published a couple of uncharacteristically nuanced and interesting pieces of journalism, especially about child transition and the complexities around that. Because it's a, it is very, all pediatric medicine is very complicated. Pediatric medicine, where you're looking at long interventions that mean long-term impingement of fertility and sexual function are very very complex and there's a lot that needs to be weighed ethically about whether these are the right treatments being applied to the right children so the nyt has done some good coverage of that that does show that there is you know a bit of space opening up for that conversation but if it continues to be a culture war issue if the whole trans thing continues to be something that is only referenced politically by republicans seeking to rally their base then it's going to become more and more toxic and more and more awful and more and more polarized often more and more extreme view yeah i did a, um read one of your blogs back way back in 2014 <laughs> very platforming and Ooh. wow it, it, it just took me back to a time and a place in that blog that was the first thing i got called a turf for which well that's that's what triggered the landslide or the first yeah. one so um you discussed in it ros caveni who oh. found a found a member of feminist against censorship yeah um joined the calls for no platforming yeah and then i tried to get a comment from roz for the piece about um well about whether she saw that there was any conflict between these two positions or just any comment whatsoever <laughs> any comment at all <laughs> just, just, just please you know just you know 
tell me something that I can put in as a quote. Um, and that whole process of trying to get a quote was um, astonishingly hostile and frustrating. <laughs> so I had, um, I still have the emails that I sent, um, and it was basically me saying, "Please can you give me a quote?" And the immediate response was, "No, you are a transphobe." I was like. Okay, I guess I just I only wanted to like get your comment in the article, but okay. Um, and there was, and this is really the essence of the no debate position, right? This is where Ros Kaveni was coming from in this case that there could be no debate about this conception of trans rights and this conception of trans rights that Ros was endorsing involved no platforming Judy Bindle, a lesbian feminist. Um, and it really odd because it was the first time that I had tried to report something and found that the person that I was reporting about, the people I was contacting, were absolutely hostile to communicating, were, you know, simply saw being covered as an act of quote unquote violence. So, you know, like I'd written previously about um, pro life groups. Um, and let me tell you, they're a lot bloody nicer to me than, <laughs> than Ros Kaveni was. <laughs> a lot more civil and willing to chat. <laughs> um, I, I, the fact that you had a, a member of Feminists Against Censorship censoring uh, a feminist on type of feminism, I just thought, oh, that is so 2014. It's, it's, it's glorious. It's just wonderful. I do think things have got better. I'm quite rarely am I um, an optimist. Mm. Like there are times where I think that the the liberal lefties who really care about free speech, the kind of index on censorship drive, yeah, just as weak and culturally insignificant as they've always been in my adult lives. But I don't actually think that's the case anymore. I do think there's been a bit of a cultural change in the last um, few years, pushing against censorious attitudes um, among the left. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I um, there is not kind of uniformity among feminists of my acquaintance about um, about where free speech comes in on this. So um, I know lots of feminists who are very exercised about the impingements on women's speech, but whose position is that we should never become free speech absolutists because free speech is of like too contested a value, too complicit in existing power structures. We can't be free speech absolutists. And that's not actually, that's not where I sit actually. Um, I am, I am a free speech absolutist um, with <laughs> a fascinating workaround to explain my objection to pornography that we can, <laughs> that we can get. <laughs> um, but fundamentally, I think that, like, I just think that speech needs to be free. Like, I am a 
basic bitch liberal in a great many of my positions. And one of them is about the importance of free speech. And it doesn't mean it's not complicated. It doesn't mean that there aren't some limits that you're going to hit on, you know, where freedom of speech should not be exercised. But those limits should be applied as sparingly as possible. And when it comes down to when it comes down to the idea that forms of speech should be treated as violence, I think that is the point at which the um, kind of contemporary left liberal position, however you choose to describe it, um, Wesley um, Yang actually sort of refers to it as the successor ideology doesn't he because it's essentially a kind of an incoherent mush that doesn't really map onto left or liberal um, ideology at all but has kind of occupied that space um i find that so troubling i find that so totalitarian and bizarre i'm starting to think that actually it's not really left liberal ideology it was just for a long time from the 60s onwards it was the left realized that actually the establishment was relatively reactionary and the way they kept conservative opinions as a normal conservative policies as a normal was by curtailing free speech and ideas yeah you upend that by championing the outside of free speech but actually society is somewhat flipped in that the sort of elite consensus is now progressive relatively some of the countercultural ideas are now seen as right wing and actually yeah. it's the same instinct it's just the same instinct that actually to quell free speech and now it seems like the voices that are pro free speech are primarily the baddies the yeah that idea and it's not it was never really a broad principle it was really just we need to kick about we need to kick it this door down so we can get our ideas in now our ideas in let's put the door back up right yes free speech is one of those principles about which people manage to be infinitely bad faith in its application it's almost endless um i thought yeah and i mentioned pornography in passing just then and i do think that's a really interesting test case of the kind of political passage of attitudes to censorship so obviously the initial anti-censorship attitudes and activism very much associated with left-wing values with countercultural values tightly allied to um the sexual revolution and the, you know, obviously the way the obscenity was enforced was massively detrimental to gay people, especially to gay men, and massively detrimental to women in terms of communicating information about, the, um, you know, the body and sexual violence and things like that. Obscenity law came down super hard on basically women and gay people. Um, and was used as a tool of social control to maintain their subjugation. Um, so anti-censorship activism becomes tied up with that. 
agitation um, against the agitation against pornography becomes associated with very reactionary point of view, um, like very conservative, old school sexual ethics. Um, and then we go through the internet arrives. Then the internet happens, <laughs> and suddenly, you know, yeah. <laughs> right. And suddenly you go from the situation of like, you know, the Chatterley trial, the Oz trial, you go from these cases of um, having to make the case that it should be okay to have obscenity in public. It should be an allowable part of the public sphere to this position where it's like, holy shit, like, is there anything not obscene anywhere? Is there any <laughs> is there any chance of things not being completely obscene? And one of the things that I think is only just starting to happen is a, a correction of the values around attitudes to pornography, because for a very long time, the left-wing position was a kind, was a default, it's probably fine, right? Only a dumb nerd would try and stop pornography um, and I include myself as like having held that opinion and now we are having to actually deal with some of the consequences of living in a world that has been very much immersed in porn and in a world where pornography has shaped and is shaping people's especially men's libidos their attitude to women their attitude to children um, and their sexual and social values in lots of ways. Um, and I find it really fascinating to kind of see the beginnings of a political response to a, to a reality that we've basically been living in now for 20 years, mm -hmm. but, have, but neither political side has been intellectually equipped to reckon with, with the tools at their disposal. Yeah, I feel like we are going through a, a great period of flux when it comes to trying to sort out some of our societal norms and balance censorship with with basically the, the age old kind of conflict in Western society between wanting to be as free and open as possible and then a fairly puritanical streak and a, and a street and also a paternalistic streak as well mm. those are really two powerful cultural forces that just constantly bang against each other one actually I, oh, sorry carry on one thing i was just gonna note that popped into my mind how we've become quite relatively old school like a new gen z phenomenon is older kind of leonardo it's older celebrities mm. dating year old or 20 year old and I seen it kind of gross and some beyond gross like that's just wrong and sick and should have almost should have been allowed yeah Paul is filled with older men and women that handpicked because they look so young porn is filled with stuff that if it didn't involve an erection everyone would lose their minds about it yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that thing is like whoa don't have Oddly crude, but that'll say these relationships are so wrong, even though right. adults as well. well. Or the racism of porn, which is endemic. Like eroticized racism is um 
you know, if you took that out, then God knows what the Pornhub servers would do all day. Be nothing, nothing there at all. Um, and so you do have this very odd phenomenon of people who consider themselves like morally righteous and virtuous. And all right, the the most hilarious example of this was um, Pornhub supporting Black Lives Matter. <laughs> like, really. <laughs> And uh... <laughs> I guess another it'd be an interesting thing because I guess um, as well as the accusation of being a turf, it'd be quite interesting to get your opinions on that term and whether you think it's a slur. I think most people do. Some people simply wear it as a badge of honour, um, and it's also a swerve as well. Isn't it? Well, the sex work exclusionary yeah. radical feminist, yes. The slightly less successful coinage cousin of TERF. Um, yeah. Um, no, I do think TERF is a slur. And I do think that like any slur, the people who it's applied to are, you know, like the history of all slurs is that the people who they're applied to pick them up, use them semi-ironically and like... It, it does become a badge of pride at some points. Um, I feel deeply ambivalent about the idea of, you know, there are some people who are very attached to the label of being a turf. And I do feel that it's not necessarily super psychologically healthy to define yourself in opposition to, you know, to anything really. I one of the things that I've always been um, interested in about the um, basically like a, a real re-energizing of grassroots feminism, basically in response to the radical demands of trans activism. So if you look at campaign groups like Women's Place, enormously effective, draws on incredible organizing experience of women with really deep roots in the trade union movement. Um, is a fantastic model for people who disagree working together um, because a lot of the women who have leadership positions in it being from the trade union left are obviously like from the hard left um, and that and they that has never been an issue in terms of you know there has never been any sense of just we don't want to associate with the dirty centrists <laughs> or you know, we won't talk to disgusting Tories because these are women who come out of an organising tradition who understand that politics is about getting together, focus on the thing you're trying to get done, move forwards. They've always been interested in activism. And it's that idea of the activism that comes out of it. Because fundamentally, the point that sex exists is quite callow. I mean, my, <laughs> my dad once over dinner do you think you'd spend so much time writing about this so like, no really dad no no I didn't actually <laughs> I really thought that once I pointed out humans were mammals everyone would be like great points there and let's move on <laughs> we're not uh, we're not was it seahorses or something I don't know. um clownfish oh. and slime molds that's the other big one that people like to mention um I mean I I can't breathe underwater so I don't really like my chances of changing snacks
Yeah, I guess I guess the new phenomenon is that there is this idea of a kind of a male brain and a female brain, and it's perfectly normal. Like that's that, that being somehow okay. That's that being seen as fine. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting kind of again. That's a one of those positions that seems to have sort of flipped its political affiliation because. Back at the start of the noughties, that was very associated with um, the neuroscientist Simon Baron-Cohen, neurosexism, this idea that, you know, like basically the men are from Mars, women are from Venus. <laughs> oh my God, of course he, your husband can't pick up after himself or remember birthdays because he's just been designed by nature to throw spears. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, give him a spear and stop nagging, you horrible bitch. So that's a very conservative position that has undergone this sort of political metamorphosis, been pink and blue washed, come out the other side as something that ostensibly liberal people apparently believe, which is that if a small child wants to play with higher heels and handbags, then that small child is the girl, regardless of their physical sex and that the sex can be decided by the stereotypes. Yeah, and it's, um, broadly speaking, the stereotypes that kind of frame a woman's experience and socialisation are really terrible stereotypes. Mm. The only one I can think of as a man and from a male experience is this idea that we are emotionally unavailable, that we are emotionally distant from ourselves, and that we 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 are hardwired not to be able to kind of express our emotions or be in touch with them and actually we when we do show them we show them in anger and that's kind of how we're sort of hardwired it's like yeah incredibly toxic idea and some of these ideas around that's the male brain if your child is sensitive if your boy is sensitive in touch with their feelings and emotional that maybe they're not actually their boy that has really toxic implications for men. Like has really toxic implications in terms of yeah, as you're saying, in terms of what it excludes for that sex as a class. Um, you know, it is diminishing to reduce either sex to the stereotypes associated with it because you know no one is a stereotype, and certainly no group that constitutes half the planet can be covered by one set of stereotypes it's really diminishing i think i find the um brain sex thing so fascinating because one of the places where one of the ways in which i think i have changed my mind over time is um being more open to the idea that there are some like fundamental variations in disposition across large populations by sex that there just probably is that to a certain extent um and then those predispositions are rinsed through social conditioning and they are and you kind of come out the other end and in terms of kind of studying them or coming to any real concrete conclusions about what they are and what they mean, I'm kind of like, good luck to you, science. <laughs> like, <laughs> good luck finding anything that counts as a peer-reviewed study out of that mess. But I do find it persuasive, and I think there is, you know, 
a convincing body of evidence that there are some differences that on aggregate have some effect on behavioural tendencies. Overwhelming percentage of violent crime, wild crime, being committed by males. Why? It's like, okay, that is probably primarily driven by socialisation, but a propensity for aggression. There is probably a small element that is there is a biological foundation for it. That's a small element, but it's still important. I think it's a testosterone is a really powerful hormone. It does it does a lot. <laughs> it has a lot to bring to the table. Um and like I don't put great stock in the idea that everything humans do can be explained by reference to the Pleistocene. You know, we're not all products of a savanna that doesn't exist anymore. But equally, the idea that we alone, out of all animals, <laughs> would have no predispositions whatsoever <laughs> is kind of sensationally arrogant, actually. Like, but it seems vanishingly unlikely to be true. Um, the sound change has been the idea that it was once seen as progressive. And if, for example, you were like my mum, who was. Mm. Homeboy who is sexually androgynous, her clothing rejected gender norms. That actually, yeah. the the idea that I'm still a woman, but I reject these gender norms and societal norms that are quite oppressive. It would seem aggressive, but that yeah. now it seems what what the foundation of being a woman is now being distilled to those those norms that are not all right. positive. And also those norms have, um, you know, exaggerated quite considerably over the time. So since I was a child, I'm 41 now. And, um, you know, my experience of being a child was I wore a lot of gender-neutral hand-me-down clothes. Um, you know, I, I was not a tomboy, um, but I loved playing out. I, you know... And I played a lot with Lego as well as with dolls. And I had a very kind of mixed play experience. And over the subsequent decades, there has been a real commercial pressure towards gender differentiation within products for children. So Lego is much more sexed now, gendered, than it formerly was. Children's clothes are crazy gendered. They are so, like, just psychopathically gendered. Like, just... You can walk into Marks and Spencer's and buy effectively an outfit that says, I am a demure little princess. <laughs> Ask me for a kiss. You, you've also done lots of research to kind of understand the experience in their own words of a trans person and what it means to be trans and why they are. And it's so often um, explained in terms of Gen gender identity is ex explained in terms of gender expression. Right. And there's a very um, sort of a fascinating manoeuvre that happens often within um, narratives of transness where the gender expression is laid out and then you're told, but of course the gender expression isn't why I'm trans. And you're like, where is where is the bit? <laughs> where is like give me the next bit? I want it. I want to understand where is the the explanation. 
so that kind of like the most generous interpretation of that is that a person so you, you accept the idea that everyone has a gender identity your gender identity is masculine or feminine to some extent and in order to express that gender identity you respond to what the society around you presents as masculine or feminine so rather than so the kind of the argument there is that rather than children having likes or dislikes which are then placed on a framework of gender everything exists on a framework of gender and children are selecting their likes or dislikes in response to their gender identity so just to be clear it's like a um, a boy is born with a feminine brain and yeah. how that expresses itself is through our gender norms and that but that innate feminine brain cannot be and it would be wrong to put it back in this box you know that, that it <laughs> needs to express itself and it needs to be a yeah yeah that that's the argument that i i think is being made in those cases um but i find it a very limiting i find it such a limiting argument because um i think the thing that i have always come up against on this is i think everyone's everyone's body is one of the most important facts about yourself and you you know like you have no existence that isn't embodied the self you you know the body you are is the self you are and i cannot accept an understanding of the world that says that some immaterial sense of self is more meaningful than the body what i can accept and i do accept is that there are people who's intense unhappiness with their sexed body for whatever reason is such that transitioning is the most appropriate way for them to find peace and happiness and what i also accept and what i find like and i find well part of the reason i ended up writing about this is i find it really interesting humans are so interestingly just weird right just like very we do very strange and fascinating things and i find it like so compelling i love it um, and there are people whose understanding of themselves and their experience of themselves is for them best narrated by describing themselves as a member of the opposite sex and that suits them it works for them and just kind of you know whatever like people make their own lives what none of that is is a basis for policy making en masse yes and it's really interesting that actually if you interrogate that you go that actually all the all the segmentations that are used Labour Remain voters Leave voters Conservatives, pensioners the majority of all those segments say that a gender person should need to obtain a doctor's approval to change their legal and that they would need to provide evidence they have lived in their new gender for at least two years or they're able to legally change. And a plurality of 18 to 24-year-olds also agree with that argument, which suggests, a to me, suggests that the 
mainstream opinion is similar to yourself. So actually these individuals who have a deep discomfort with their own body and they would need to go through a certain level of gatekeeping and experience um, in a medical environment to get that transition certified and there should yeah. a level of comes kind of comes on medicalization and that seems to be the mainstream opinion of most people and and overwhelmingly once that transition has taken place people are understanding and accepting and will allow that individual to live in their chosen and there is properly protection under the Equality Act for people in that situation, and that is appropriate and important. Um, I think one of the um, but that's problems still, that would that's still not a, that's still completely correct because for lots of people in the trans right trans rights movement, because that is seen as medicalizing something that's completely completely natural and completely innate. I guess my final question because I, I know that we haven't <laughs> would be smooth segue there um was do you ever have felt like i do that actually gender identity is something absolutely innate that a child was born with and to re reject that idea that it is natural um that should be embraced and however it is expressed that you are somehow on the wrong side you of the you ever think I could be wrong? Yeah, on the wrong Never side of the science. Yeah. Uh, on the wrong side of the science and also the wrong side of history and the death and just because uh, it's it's one of these great fears that actually maybe maybe I I will be looked back by history as a bastard. That's terrible, isn't it? I doubt very much that history will ever see you as a bastard. <laughs> very unbastard. <laughs> Um, it's a really interesting question because it's um, so kind of one of the things I did early on was a lot of reading and try and absorb as much information as I could really about what is this phenomenon being described as gender identity what is actually being described it's a very diffuse concept and if you look at the etiology by which people become trans or experience themselves as trans, there are there are very disparate experiences, and they're very distinct by sex as well. So, kind of classic example of that is that the original cohort that came to child gender clinics would be very small boys who behaved effeminately, whose parents were concerned about this. They became replaced over time by a female cohort, but these were not small girls. These were adolescent girls who did not have a history of quote unquote cross gender identification or play. They had during adolescence, like begun to experience themselves as trans, begun to identify as male or identify as non-binary. So very different experiences. Um, and the other kind of classic pathway is the middle-aged male who has a history of cross-dressing and who over time becomes more and more attached to a feminine identity and who then physically transitions to that. Um, and so examples of that, people who've written very good first-person narratives of that are Caitlyn Jenner and um, 
Jan Morris. That's who I'm trying to remember. Um, these are extremely different experiences. And one version of understanding that is to say, well, all of these people have a thing called a gender identity and it's just being expressed in different ways. But that doesn't explain why pe why these people buy. So your young male transitioners are much more likely to be gay. Your adolescent female transitioners are more likely to be lesbian, but I don't think that the distinction is quite as marked among that cohort as it is a young among younger males. And your adult male transitioners are much more likely to be straight. These are really different groups of people, have really different life experiences. And the idea that they are all having one experience that can just be collected under a single umbrella seems so improbable to me. You don't need to be um, a genius to see a pattern in that very... We live in a still what remains a very homophobic society. Young boys not pissing in at an early age. People are atrocious. Actually, it's one of the things that the Hannah Barnes book, um, who did the Newsnight investigation into the Tavistock Clinic, has now written this book called Time to Think. One of the most striking things that comes out in that is that the clinicians at the Tavistock tended, not all of them, but many of them, especially the ones who were straight, were very naive about the level of homophobia that might exist among the families of the children they were treating. So they were disbelieving and shocked to encounter parents who would openly say they'd rather their child was trans than gay because having a gay child was problematic and abnormal. Transitioning them was a way to make them normal in you know within the lights of those parents' values. I think a lot of people... We do live in a society where homophobia has diminished massively, but, you know, if you live, you know, among the kind of, you know, the milieu of healthcare workers and journalists and, you know, people, you know, people like us, right, you are going to be insulated to a certain extent from the fact that there are people who are strongly homophobic and that attitude does intersect with the way they interpret their child's gendered behaviour and what they think is acceptable for their child. And secondly, when it comes to teenage girls, the you know every woman's on a frequency will have stories about maybe is too much of a strong word, but they, you know it's puberty. Almost all girls experience puberty as dysphoric. I think. I mean, there will be exceptions, but. I think the nature of female puberty is physically it's it's an extreme transformation that you go through and it is extreme for boys as well you go through a lot as a boy but you are not you're basically getting bigger you get bigger and beefier <laughs> <laughs> that old testosterone works it's magic <laughs> and you get bigger and beefier um Whereas as a girl, you move into a different kind of body. Like you go from being, you know, you go from not having soft, bumpy bits to having soft, bumpy bits. You go from not having periods to having periods. These are, um, and you know, and those are like big things to happen in and of themselves. You layer on top of that the fact that you live in a society where having your soft bumpy bits means that all of a sudden 
you know, adult men are going to look at you very wolfishly, speak to you differently, touch you differently in some cases. You enter this world of being treated quite traumatically different. Of course, of course, some girls are going to respond to that by looking for an exit. So, but I do like, I do think about the possibility of being wrong. I do, and I, th- I was just thinking during that, well, that's, that's how I, can- the cancellation just confirmed. <laughs> I think I've gone away from this gnawing that. There's probably why I've been so hesitant doing this podcast, but like, <laughs> gnawing doubt that, um, I, I was all, I hope I built, um, certain resilience in my social circles that it would be acceptable to speak to you, sir. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Um, um, but no, it was that. Um, yeah, thank you so much for doing this, and you you know so much about this topic. And I, what I really admire is your the time and effort that you took to understand feminists who disagreed perspectives, trans people who dis- disagreed their perspectives, and actually do the hard graft. And it, and it seems like you, you talk about it in your blogs about your your transition, your change of opinion, and how difficult that was. And I I commend that. And that, because I sometimes sit here and wish I, I didn't think the things I did, and I wish I believed differently. That's interesting. And almost I wish I believed in God. Have this kind of attitude with it. I wish I believed the the current political, you use the term elite kind of opinions on this. Most of my friends believe. I really wish I could just be part of that stream. It's difficult. It's difficult to be estranged from what feel like the kind of like mainstream values of your group. It is zero fun to feel like you're in that position. But at the same time, I think one of the things that's been that was actually a really huge influence on me in um, development of my feminism was an article by a philosopher called Michaela Ferguson called Choice Feminism and the Fear of Politics. And that's basically where I kind of picked up the idea of, that was the first time I saw explain the idea of disagreement as being fundamental to politics. You don't have politics if you don't have the capacity for disagreement. Um, And one of the things she writes about, um, a phrase that I found incredibly bizarre the first time I read it, and will sound insane when I say it to you now, but um, I think she talks about the erotics of politics. I was a bit like, the the what now? (laughs) (laughs) Have have you you ever tried to have a wank to Hansard? It is not happening. But essentially, um, essentially what that means is that, um, and it's kind of like, on one hand, it's one of those ideas that's super basic. On the other hand, it's actually quite important. When you enter into any kind of like conversation, relationship, discussion, you are entering, you like are entering into a kind of state of vulnerability in which like, you know, your hope is that you're going to change the other party. You're going to influence the world. You're going to persuade someone, but you might change too. And you have to be open to the possibility that you might change too. And that is kind of terrifying because we all like to believe that we're like a, you know, a lovely little stable marble of a person (laughs) clattering around the world. Um, But also like, it isn't that great. I just, you know, like 
there are future versions of us that will know more and think differently and have had more experiences and will be changed by them. And I love that. I find it exciting and it's kind of the point of politics to me. Yeah, I would guess I was also going to say that while I do, I, I do, I can understand the social pressures feeling differently and me myself really profoundly with I had a different of this. I know that I think what I think, I believe what I believe. And when I see other people who go, actually, I know this is going to be unpopular or discomforting to some people, but I want to be true to myself. I really admire that. And that attitude probably comes from, or at least people being able to step outside and say, I believe this, you're going to disagree, but this is who I am. To be able to do that, you have to be confident and comfortable that you aren't a static marble and that you can engage with other people who disagree and that your views might change, that you don't want to close off your philosophical moral parameters and political parameters. And there's an open-mindedness comes from saying actually no i disagree and this is why and this is what i stand for but i'm willing to have that discussion with you yeah that's a good way of being we're not marbles basically <laughs> not marbles humble <laughs> i'm not sure we tumble around to different ideas and we're not <laughs> yeah final that's what i want people to take away from this podcast that you you're not a static marble and you can't be be free to bounce around and swirl around. <laughs> Wonderful. It's been so much fun. Thank you ever so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stepping Out of Line podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast and get additional content like bonus episodes and show notes, sign up to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line that's www.patreon.com slash stepping out of line if you want to find out more about Sarah Ditton and what she's getting up to you can check her out on Twitter at Sarah Ditton that's at Sarah Ditton and if you'd like to find out more about what Leo's up to make sure to check out his Twitter at Leo underscore FH that's at Leo underscore FH thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast I hope you listen to the next one.